Elytra, I think, is really deserves credit for bringing the idea to the masses. Lightfields have been sort of an academic curiosity for a long time that sort of like bubbled up in the public consciousness a few times. If we want to cut through the jargon and misapply some terms, we're like, it's holographic imaging, right? It's ways of creating things that are like way more realistic than two-dimensional images. My company's in the, in the process of proving that today's display technology can actually handle light fields. We've got a little demo and on the fly. If you are clever, you can, you can generate you know, the light rays that came from the real world and, and give someone the right view. So I think these are functionally holographic displays, right? They're capable of giving you six degree of freedom imagery, but it does work. I'm Matt, the organizer of the SF Video Technology Meetup and the Demux Conference. And I'm Steve, creator of VideoJS, the open source video player. And I'm Phil, the director of Media Technologies Engineering at Brightcove, previously building BBC iPlayer in London. And you're listening to Demuxed, a podcast for and by engineers working with video. Demuxed is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. We're always looking for topics, so if you have any suggestions or just want to tell us how wrong we are, you can find us on Twitter at Demux. When we're recording this, we're on the way towards Demux 2017. Uh, by the time this gets to your phone or browser, uh, Demux might already be done. Um, but you can find all the recordings on Twitch and uh, YouTube if that's the case. Uh, so go to demux.com. You can check out the schedule. Um, if this is before October 5th when you're hearing this, go buy a ticket and we'll see you in San Francisco. So today, um, I'm really excited to have Ryan Dam from Visby on. If you're if a member of the SF Video Meetup, you may have heard him. What, what month was that, Ryan? Oh, God, ages ago. Lifetimes ago. Yeah, pro probably <laughs> like nine something. years ago yeah. at this point. Um, <laughs> Ryan, Ryan came and gave a talk at SF Video a few months ago about light fields and what they're working on at Visby. Uh, and how that interacts with the video industry moving forward. So I'm um, really excited to have you on the show today, Ryan. No, thanks for having me. Um, so why don't, you, why don't you tell everybody a little about yourself? Uh, gosh, where to start? Founded Visby a couple years ago, um, kind of looking at the VR space and decided that uh, we needed to have more of like a light field approach and we can dig into what that means. Um, before that, I've been just kind of a video guy at various you know, tech and media related startups for a while. Yeah, that's the 10-second version. Um, so yeah, let's let's start off with uh, a really basic question here. But <laughs> what exactly are light fields? Yeah, that's the basic but like million dollar question, right? <laughs> um, one I, I apparently don't get tired of answering. No, at, at a high level, light fields are um, a different way of representing imagery, right? Um, in which you keep every single light ray separate, right? So if you imagine all the light that's bouncing around a room, if you keep every single light ray individually separate, you can do interesting things with them. I think the sort of phrase came into popular awareness uh, with the refocusing cameras that Lytro came out with a few years ago, which is one application of, of this light field uh, approach. Uh, but of course, I think there's a lot more that can be done with it. You know, at high level, that's what it is. It's like looking at the statistics of light and, and light across a large area rather than through the pinhole of a, of a camera. So when you say the interesting things that can be done with it, what are some easy examples that like I've I've seen like so, refocusing? Maybe? Yeah, like, almost all the things you can do with a light field that are interesting involve um, different ways of slicing and dicing the light rays, like after the fact. So refocusing is saying, okay, we've got this very small four-dimensional raster of light rays. If we bin them in different ways, we can actually generate different two-dimensional images out of them, right? Two-dimensional slices of this 4D. Uh, raster. Hmm. Um, when we start talking about large-scale light fields, and my interest in them is much more around uh, like arbitrary uh, perspective generation. So this gets a little a little wonky, but um, you know, if you're in a VR headset or an AR headset and you're wandering around, you want to be able to deliver different perspectives to people on the fly. Uh, if you have all the light rays separate, you can actually infer what someone would have seen 
and sort of give them a realistic view from that. So arbitrary perspective generation, um, holographic imaging to actually kind of make it a little more user friendly, like the ability to deliver multiple perspectives um, instead of like a flat image on a poster. So when you, when you spoke at um, SF Video, my only frame of reference for light fields vaguely was a what I'd heard from Adam Brown, one of my colleagues that used to work at Otoy. Like, <laughs> you know, he had mentioned it at one point, I'm sure, in the past. But I think my perspective, and I'm sure a lot of other consumers generally, is like Lytro, things like Lytro right. are the only exposure that people have to something, the concept of light field. So, what, how does that relate? To, to this conversation, like Lytro cameras and things like that. Yeah, I mean, Lytro, I think, is really deserves credit for bringing the idea to the masses, right? And their first application of light fields was, uh, was that refocusing camera. Um, not exactly a commercial success, but definitely like a very interesting application of, of this sort of idea. And the reason they started out with these refocusing cameras, frankly, is because it's what they could do. Light fields had been sort of an academic curiosity for a long time. They sort of like bubbled up in the public consciousness a few times. Refocusing cameras was the first. Elytra retooled recently, like about 2015, and started focusing on VR more and sort of mm. professional cinema applications. And these are like just expanding on more things you can do when you start to you know, have these very large uh, rasters of, of rays. Uh, you know, I think if we, want to, if we want to cut through the jargon and just like misapply some terms, we're like it's holographic imaging, right? It's ways of creating things that are like way more realistic than two-dimensional images. And that's mm. super exciting. So. You mentioned like a, a cinema use case, like yeah. So Lytro's other branch of of research is not just on uh, you know VR and AR. It's on kind of improved imaging for uh, the cinematic market. You can think of it as their refocusing camera on ridiculous steroids. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen pictures of this, it made some news. Uh, it'd be twenty sixteen. Uh, they had this seven hundred and fifty five megapixel, three hundred frames a second crazy camera thing that they built, you know, mm. crazy custom optics, you know, lenses and so on. So they kind of have two product lines right now. That's that's their big cinema that's meant for like, uh, you know, traditional 2D cinema. And then they have their um, Emerge, which is more for uh, VR and AR. Is the customer use case there that like uh, somebody on a movie set could be using this camera to capture the film, and, but then like, you know, later in post-processing, they decide, oh, you know, what? I didn't, I didn't like that angle perfectly. I didn't like that focus. And they could actually be like, almost moving the camera person around in space after after the fact? Yeah, they can do some amount of kind of like physically moving where the point of perspective is. Um, mm -hmm. You know, this all kind of traces back to the fact that you're just picking different light rays to generate an image, right? And so in a refocusing scenario, you're sort of rebinning the rays so there's a different implied focal plane. In uh, the more cinematic applications, they have really powerful ways of, you know, changing the F number of the taking lens or, uh, you know, slightly moving the perspective or doing depth matting. I think these are the few of the, the features they've shown off. But, but it all ties back to the, you have these um, rays that haven't been kind of summed together, so you can pick them apart and do interesting stuff with them. I don't think we really even scratch the surface of what that means. Hmm. Um, they've done some things that are physically impossible to capture. They've demonstrated uh, imagery from an, a, the equivalent of an f.3 lens, I think was one of the numbers, which is just like physically impossible to do. Um, what is, is f.3? So you know, the f number on a lens uh, is sort of like the ratio of the aperture to the focal length. That's the nerdy definition of it. But what it really relates to is like how narrow is the depth of field. Right. And it turns out there's physical limits on kind of how many light rays you can gather together and make a sharp image. But if you keep the light rays separate, you can sort of arbitrarily mathematically bend them in ways that are optically impossible. And so they're really sort of pushing the boundaries of what's possible in two-dimensional imaging by starting out with, with light fields, hmm. which is interesting. And, and frankly, it's kind of, I think it's a transitional case for, for light fields. Mm -hmm. you know, I think that's interesting. The reason I started Visby was not to go make better 2D images. It's more like what can light fields do as displays start to change? Because to me, this is all about future displays. VR is the first. We're going to get augmented reality in some form or another. And I think eventually these 
uh, TVs are all going to be multi-perspective. And that, that Lytro camera is like an insanely expensive piece of hardware kit, right? Like we're talking, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, you have to like fund a company with a bunch of money to get one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I believe it's a $200 million company, uh, camera or something like that. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's, it's hardcore R&D, right? Like they're spending the money to kind of like figure these things out for the first time. My understanding is just I hear through the grapevine that uh, they're working on, you know, miniaturizing it and, and making it cheaper and kind of getting it out to, I don't think it's going to be mass market. I think it's going to be a very specialized piece of kit, but you know, something that's not like a one-off that shows up in its own truck, you know, right. Fun company to pay attention to and they're doing lots, lots of cool stuff. How does this play into the AR, VR, 360 space? Like, where's the commonality? Where's the difference? You know, like, we're all very used to now, you know, we weren't maybe 12 months ago, but like now we're all very used to talking about, you know, Vive headsets and that sort of thing. And where we see, you know, 3G generated worlds and, you know, some very rudimentary captured, you know, AR, VR video, you know, I can't remember the right word, but the hemispherical you know, yeah. um, produce piece of content with a kind of a static point of, of view. Like, how does this play into that then? How does this change what AR looks like? Yeah, so I think the background is VR right now, which is kind of in market, is basically just a video game technology. And like all the hype, the, the deflation of the hype cycle, I think, is as people starting to realize all the projections around how transformative VR can be really rely on it being something other than a, a video game peripheral. And we haven't yet seen that happen. But the imaging chain is based on video game stack, basically. If you want to go work in it, you're working in Unity, you're working in Unreal. The basic unit of visual information is a polygon, right? And, and that's fine. And then alongside that, you have 360 video, right? The echo rectangular, whatever. We're abusing 2D video tools to wrap them around someone's head. It's still fundamentally a 2D technology, right? You mm -hmm. can look all around, but it's just a sphere around your head, right? Maybe it's a stereosphere if you're, if you're really fancy. Mm. That doesn't really unlock the power of these displays, though, right? The power of these displays is you can like walk around and see new perspectives and really feel like you're in a, in a place. And the, the problem with the, the polygon approach, the video game peripherals, is things look like a video game. So the way light fields fit in here is um, they have the promise to give you that positional tracking. So you can walk around and see new perspectives and feel like you're in a place, but actually give you something that's photographically correct, uh, not just uh, you know kind of a bad early 2000s video game. And the reason we can do that is we're not necessarily representing the shape of the scene, which is um, photographically deficient, right? The shape is one thing, but we actually want to know how light interacts with the shape. And so if you have all of the light rays, then you don't need to worry about the shape. You just deliver the light rays that someone would have seen, and it should, in theory, be totally photorealistic. Uh, in practice, um, you know, we're not quite there yet. This is one of those like future technologies, but it's really necessary. Otherwise, all these things are just going to be, you know, will remain video game peripherals and I think in your in your guest's first episode, you're like, is VR the thing that's going to die in two years? Like, is this like the next the next hype cycle? You know, so <laughs> so not if light fields come along. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, my 3D TV is just good for accidentally getting turned on and being blurry. And I, <laughs> I finally had to remove it from our Harmony remote because we kept accidentally bumping it on the couch, and then like, why does this look like such shit? Like, oh, oh, right. Yes. <laughs> It was literally only ever good for two-player video games with different <laughs> screens. <laughs> literally the only good thing. It'd be awkward to share a VR headset that way, so this is not <laughs> potentially less useful. <laughs> like, we can't do this with existing VR headsets, right? We're going to have to come up with a, a different display technology for this as well, right? Well, okay, so no. are we going to no. be able to use the same display hardware and just do some very cool stuff with what we captured from Lightfield to render it? So my company's in the, in the process of proving that today's display technology can actually handle light fields. We've got a little demo, uh, which unfortunately can't show you guys Ooh. today because I, I traveled light. 
Uh, but we have a demo that runs on a laptop. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Minor detail. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, we've got something running in an Oculus, and it is photorealistic, and it is six degree freedom. Um, still very early days, but you know it can be done. Uh, there's just a lot more work to to do before it's kind of uh, commercially viable. Hmm. Uh, but it does work. I mean, these displays can you know draw two million pixels, which end up being light rays poured into your eye, and on the fly, if you are clever, you can you can generate you know the light rays that came from the real world and and give someone the right view. So I think these are functionally holographic displays, right? They're capable of giving you six degree of freedom uh, imagery. Uh, it's just that the software stack is way behind, and that's mm-hmm. that's kind of what Visby's working on. It's partly what Lytro's working on. It's what Otoy's working on, and there's a few other companies. I wouldn't say it's a race. I'd say that we're all trying to figure out what it's going to take to get these things to be practical. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a series of, of pretty tough technical challenges that still have to be still have to be tackled. Yes, yeah, so, so I think I understand. So the promise here is that basically like something that feels like a VR video game, but it's real life, right? Like you're actually yeah. looking at, at real images. What needs to happen? Because as the demos that I've seen around Lightfield have been in one place, like, and, and so you're, you, the camera's set up in one place and, and you can move your head around where you are. You can maybe move as much as like a few feet. What needs to happen to where you can actually like walk around in an environment so this brings up a really good point. I think that light fields are really critical for the future, but they're not going to be the entire future. There are advantages to having a polygon representation of the world or a point cloud representation. And being able to walk around anywhere you want is actually one of the big advantages of polygons. Okay. Uh, because if you know the shape of an object, um, you can now synthesize a view of it from any direction. A pure light field approach in which you're actually sampling light rays and then trying to rebend them and, and draw perspectives from them, you have to actually capture the light rays in the first place. So you're actually limited by the physical extent of your capture device, you know, how many cameras do you have wired together, basically. Mm-hmm. So if you want somebody to, be able to walk around a whole room, you know, you'd, you'd sort of be stuck having to put cameras around the edges of the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's possible. And we've, we've been playing around with that. We were talking to a, um, an equipment company yesterday about, uh, you know, how many cameras can we pack in a small space? What would that look like? Um, <laughs> but when you start to have those kind of conversations, it's very clear that there's sort of a, a limit to how physically far you can go. Now, I think it's worth it if you can bring the real world in and it looks realistic, right? Mm-hmm. You're not limited by the subject matter. You're not only shooting on green screens. You're not only, you know, filming like very, very carefully lit subjects, but you can say, let's let's go transport someone to somewhere in the real world and have it look good. But by the way, if you take more than two steps in any direction, um, everything breaks. So I think, I think it's kind of going to be the trade-off. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So what hardware are you using right now? Like, what is your capture setup? Oh, it's incredibly like? embarrassing. We're a minimally funded startup, so we're using a bunch of uh, knockoff GoPros. That's that's not a, that's not a nice picture. The Xiaoyi action camera, they're actually better than GoPros, but they're cheaper. Therefore, they, they look inferior, but no, they're fantastic. You can synchronize them all. Um, but they're like $200 cameras. So we have 50 of them in a big grid. And... Um, you know, so it's effectively a hundred megapixel imager. That part sounds pretty cool, mm-hmm. um, but I am wrangling like you know fifty tiny micro SD cards at a time, so it feels like a big step back. You know? <laughs> so so and, definitely consumer ready is what you're saying. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah there will be a sign up link. It, I can send you guys. It. You guys can order fifty cameras at a time and wire them together yourselves. You're ready to go. <laughs> you just need fifty SD card uh, SD card readers yeah. or patience and tweezers, and yeah. you're good to go. Yeah, Got it. the workflow is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> So, what do you see as like the like the most exciting use cases in in the future for? So, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go crazy on you here. I think in ten years, it's all gonna be light fields, everything. I think our our TV is gonna be holographic. I think that your phone's gonna have these holographic displays, and I think the entire signal chain is gonna have to be multi perspective. Hmm. Uh, the display hardware is actually getting there. There's I've seen stuff behind closed doors of holographic panels that are really convincing. Hmm. Um, you know, nothing commercially available yet, but it's it's coming. And I think unlike 3D TV, uh, you know, a holographic panel is going to be 
a big upgrade. People are going to want to be able to hang a window on their wall that they can like tune into different places, right? So oh, that's that's the long term like crazy thought. Like everything's going to go holographic, and at that point, you know, all the work that's gone into these two D codecs uh, are going to have to go into these four dimensional codecs and light field codecs. And <laughs> that's where I started getting intimidated about how much work there remains to be done. Like, oh my god, there's so much to do. Uh, like, yeah. uh -huh. We could we're like the barely barely baby steps right now. Like, hey, we got thirty frames to play back on a laptop with like a GTX 1080 in it. <laughs> we're there. It's like no, we can't we can't capture, we can't stream, we can't edit. There's so many things to do still. Hmm. So ten years is not a long time. We've we've got to mm -hmm. we got to get to work. You know, so I don't know if that if that's a satisfying answer or not. But that's the big the big idea I think. Yeah, well, you t you touched on something there that's kind of interesting. What what does it look like? So if everything's light field, like what does the the lean back experience look like? If you're sitting on the couch, how does that impact? Like I I can understand like you know you've got the VR goggles on. Right. Like what, how does it impact like you're sitting on the couch and you're looking at something that supports light field up on on the wall? Um. So I think it may look like a minor improvement over a lot of lean back entertainment today. Um, the, the main advantage will just be that we'll seem really real, right? And uh, it sounds minor, but even the tiny bit of uh, perspective change as you, as you shift around slightly makes it feel like you're not looking at a flat image anymore. And we don't really appreciate how much mental training has gone into understanding a 2D image as an image and trying to like transport yourself there. Hmm. None of that cognitive load is involved when you're looking at a holographic image. You really feel like you're looking through a window and it feels very natural. And that could be pleasant or unpleasant. I don't think I want to watch horror films that way. Um, <laughs> but even, even, even minor movements actually give you uh, a really strong sense of depth, much more than just stereopsis. Uh, it turns out that the tiny micro movements, we're seeing how objects shift relative to one another, tiny amounts of parallax. When those are correlated with our proprioception, it feels really real. Hmm. So, you know, short of, I'm not sure if I can verbalize it, but trust me, when you experience it, it's, it's a different level entirely. So I, I think it's just things are going to look better, right? It's going to be like, it's not as easy to convey as when television went from black and white to color, but it might be a similar upgrade in perceptual quality. This is, this is a really dumb example, but we try and get our dog to use FaceTime, <laughs> and she has no idea what's going on like you yeah. can tell like she can't tell what the image actually is because and so i wonder with Lightfield if it like actually looked real to be closer yeah, i mean she's yeah. probably way more interested if it smelled like you unfortunately <laughs> her experience of the world is probably a bit different but yeah <laughs> so, so i i had a note that i wanted to ask about how this is going to affect cinematography mm -hmm. uh, in the future and i think we're already kind of touching on that a little bit but like what, what comes to mind is the jump from you know 30 FPS to 60 FPS and how it kind of feels at least in, in my opinion I, I kind of hate it like I yeah. hate the uh, I call it um, the soap opera look I, I didn't coin this phrase I'm sure somebody else did yeah the soap opera the soap opera effect that you have on TVs that upscale it and it can make otherwise good actors just look terrible like because everything looks more real you judge everything a lot more so do you see similar things happening with this? This feels like the next level of that. And then on top of that, like, so my, my other question would be, I've heard some people say that they see one of the benefits of light field for cinematographers is being able, to, is similar to what people see as the real benefit of 360 video, where it's if you have 360, 360 degrees of capture, you have more freedom with what you do with your camera. So like if I'm snowboarding with a 360, 360 degree camera on my head, I don't have to worry about looking at all the interesting things. I can edit the video later to capture what's cool. Yeah, do you mean like a, a two-dimensional cutout from the 360? Right, okay, exactly. All right. Um, so I've heard people say similar things about light fields. Is you, you have more freedom later to go in and adjust the perspective a little bit from a, from a director's So th Those are two very complex questions. Let me tackle the cinematography one first. Um, I think that on sets in general, and this is just anecdotal conversations I've had, 
there has been some heartburn from onset uh, directors of photography, and lighting DPs, and so on about the number of choices and creative choices that are actually made in post-production. Right, uh, color I think is the most recent where color decisions used to be baked in either on you know basically on how you expose the film uh, or how you painted it into you know a, a camera system that wasn't uh, you know wasn't raw. Uh, now that decision is being deferred to post when a colorist might be making these decisions who wasn't on set and the DP is not there. I think there's a a little unease and some risk around light fields that uh, a lot of the decisions you would normally make, what we consider the art of cinematography, is now being completely deferred to the user, right? Uh, where the, how do you frame the shot, the perspective, the, the framing is, you know, it's, it's closer to theater where the blocking actually determines the, the action than cinematography where the frame directs your attention um, because it's not a 2D medium anymore. Now, I think there's always uncertainty around new technology and some people who are diving in are really excited, but we still don't know what the language is going to look like. And um, I would be perfectly comfortable if people didn't want to call it cinematography anymore. It's a very different uh, discipline. The creative language hasn't really been formulated yet. That's punting a bit, but uh, in truth, I think there's a lot of work to do on the creative side. And to address the first question, uh, I actually had a, a deep conversation with a friend about uh, 120 frame a second shooting. I, don't know if, I haven't seen it yet, but apparently mm -hmm. Billy Lynn's lo long halftime walk, uh, Ang Lee's latest film, shot 120 frame a second, stereo 4K, and people said it radically changed acting. And uh, the, the theory is now we're at high enough frame rates at that point that you can actually, all the like tiny subconscious cues you get in, in how people's faces move, you actually pick up these tiny micro expressions that are incredibly telling, and it changes the art of acting. Hmm. And so I think what we're seeing is this isn't just an extension to cinematography or an extension to sort of traditional filmmaking. It's kind of a new discipline, and um, you know, it's going to take us a few years of fumbling around to figure it out. I should say, though, I don't think it's going to be like some hybrid of video games. It's not like, oh, it's all going to be interactive now. Like People have been talking about interactive stuff for 20 years, and it's never really quite panned out. I think people like, like lean-back entertainment. Mm -hmm. So, But yeah, it'll, it'll change everything. Um, that can be good, it can be bad. <laughs> So what does this mean for the video industry as a whole? You know, we've got file formats now, we've got delivery technologies, we know how to do what we're doing now. Is that all completely changed? Is it just a fundamental disruption we're going to see over the next 10 years? Uh, yeah, I mean, the two are going to live alongside each other for quite a while. And I should say there's going to be some extensions on top of 2D video that will sort of bring it in these new mediums. Um, I'm hearing a lot of people talking about you know, RGB plus depth, ways of augmenting traditional 2D images so they've got a little bit of depth to them so someone can move around a tiny bit. I haven't seen a great implementation of it, but I think that's going to live kind of at the low end and be a transitional format for a long time. So I would say that in traditional video chains, there's going to be a lot of grafting stuff on to support these new, these new media. Um, at the same time, uh, the you know, light fields and volumetric approaches and, and uh, the, these sort of new holographic approaches are so raw that there's going to be a lot of work where people take the lessons learned over the last 20 years of online video and start applying it to these new uh, these new representations. The challenge is that the data formats themselves are radically different. Um, I mean, people are playing around with form a whole lot, but literally the way images are represented in bytes is changing completely. Um, now, there has been work on you know polygon compression kind of in the video game industry already, so you may see that. You know, you may see people having to kind of like hybridize a bit, start to get smart about that stuff. Uh, on the light field side. Um, I'd say it's just still in the realm of like PhD math right now. So I think eventually you get to the <laughs> point where formats are locked and people can start to do real things on top of it. But it's, uh, it's pretty hard to move that ball forward for a little while. I think formats is a really interesting one to talk about, right? I, I was at a, a MPEG meeting uh, about 12 months ago now where there was initial talk about trying to come up with some sort of codec for, you know, light field representation of data. Do you know about where that's got to? Like, what are you using to represent 
light field data? And is there going to an industry standard here? Yeah, I can't talk in detail about how we're representing light fields for, for two really important reasons. One is that it's it's a bit of trade secret, and the other one is that I don't understand it at all. It's completely <laughs> over my head. So I'm not going to uh, mess things up by trying to give you a garbled version of it. Uh, in terms of the standards bodies, though, I can say this. I think we're still at the very early days when people are trying to agree on terminology. And you know, if you look at some of the proposals that are out there, the JPEG Plano Working Group's doing a lot of good stuff, and they're sort of broadcasting some ideas. Uh, there's some MPEG working group, uh, VRIF, I think, is meeting in December, which we may be, may be attending. Um, but we're still at the phase where everyone's kind of throwing everything at the wall and see what's going to stick because there's nothing around light fields anyway that's practical yet. And I think whatever becomes practical may well lead the way towards a standard. But all the proposals right now uh, are a grab bag. They're saying, like, well, we should support point clouds and polygon based approaches and light field rasters. And I think if you just look at the proposals, I don't see anything uh, on the light field side that's, that's ready for prime time. Now, we think our representation can be made quite small. Uh, we've got some early proof of concept. Uh, that, by the way, is the big barrier. You want to get light fields into like some sort of workable standard, you have to have some way to compress it down. The, the data rates we're talking about, in theory, an uncompressed light field is like petabytes in size. Um, so, so how do you deal, deal with that? And, you know, as soon as someone gets it to work, I think that's going to probably be the first down payment on a standard, but don't hold your breath. I don't think it's going to be hashed out in an MPEG meeting in the next two months. So that was, that was actually a, a big question that I was going to ask is, you know, to, to Phil's point, you know, we, we kind of know how to work with the formats that we have today. So like throwing a new format into the mix isn't the end of the world. Uh, but we're already with the explosion of video on the internet in general, uh, in some some places we're already kind of starting to test the edges of our current network capacity already. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so all of a sudden, if, if we're talking, you know, 10xing, 20xing, 30xing, uh, what we're delivering, and the infrastructure hasn't caught up there yet, what is what does that even mean? Like, wh- what are we talking about here in terms of say we can get some sort of standard? Like, what is what do you think the lower bounds of file size and what we're delivering looks like there? We haven't found the bottom yet, but I can tell you we're aiming for 100 megabit, which is incredibly aggressive, you know, um, for a, a a good high resolution multi megapixel light field. I think we're going to hit it. Uh, we've got a great team. We're working really hard at it, and we've seen really good progress. And we're on track for it, but we're still, you know, we're still not ready to come to market with it yet. I think at 100 megabit, it will work with today's infrastructure. If it's significantly above that, I was talking to someone who's uh, big in the industry was saying 500 megabit is his sort of his lower bound for practical applications. And if you can't get to there, it's just a curiosity. It's never going to make it to market. So, you know, I guess the, to, to punt, the answer is somewhere between 100 and 500 megabit is required. And until we get there, it's going to remain a curiosity. But I think we'll be there within a year. Um, now, that's my aggressive projection. We'll be there within a year. So realistically, like, this isn't going to be over IP for a long time, right? Maybe 100 megabit. I mean, how much how much of the world is connected at 100 megabit? Not a huge amount outside of like major build up areas, right? Maybe in 10 years. Yeah, maybe. I think it's going to be challenging, right? Yeah. I mean, so how many people have uh, high end VR headsets that can even use a light field right now? I mean, it's sort of we're still at the the foundational <laughs> stages. Um, we are keeping our eye on 5G. I think at the point where we can stream over, you know, next gen cell networks and fortunately install base on phones turns over really quickly. So we may see sort of um, you know realistic bandwidth down to the consumer jumping up a lot in the next two three years. I think and there's, there's been a big push behind that rollout. So I wouldn't say we're counting on 5G, but we're we're hopeful. I mean, you know. 
to, to frame this a bit, 100 megabit is, is insane. I just want to say that right off the bat. Like, there's no, there's no way we should be talking about that. Like, uh, an uncompressed light field is, is completely preposterously large. Um, and we're not dealing with pixel-based formats anymore, right? You know, I think that's a, sort of an interesting technical point the audience may appreciate. Like, there is a ground truth when you're dealing with a 2D video. You look at an uncompressed video, you know that you've got some raster, you know, they've got some value at each raster point. True light fields are actually perspective, could be perspective-free or arbitrary perspective. You can't, like, require the VR user to be standing on a grid and exactly turn their head in, like, 0.1 degree increments or something, right? They can be at any arbitrary, like, angle. And so you've got this almost analog space, the data, the data space is so large if you want to be high fidelity. Um, hmm. So it's... Uh, you know, we've made some breakthroughs at Visby where we feel we can get down to 100 megabit, and that alone, like, you know, we should be celebrating. <laughs> <laughs> so, so for reference here, because okay, so some people to try to improve delivery of 360 video, for example, they try to guess where your head's going, um, encode your field of vision, and then maybe encode like a like a little bit around it, and then just keep up with your head movement. Um, sounds like that is that's such a, a minor in comparison with what we're talking about now. That is such a small uh, optimization, and doesn't even sound like that that concept. Well, there has to be there has to be an adaptive bitrate version of this, right? So you have to have some way in which you can sort of spend your bits where you think someone's going to look. For sure, that's that's going to be an issue. Um, we're still at the stage where people are worrying about representation. So you know, we're keeping in mind that we're going to want to do adaptive bitrate streaming and some sort of prediction as we build this thing out, but. Um, that's probably two steps away from now, to be frank. You know, our goal is to get something that someone can download overnight and watch a beautiful cinematic experience at home and feel like, okay, that's a really important milestone. The next step would be, okay, I can kind of, uh, I can stream it and after a little bit of buffering, watch it. And then I think a few years from now, we're going to be the point where someone wants to be live streaming, set up cameras and live stream it out to, to end clients. That might be five years away, to be completely honest. I think that's a really exciting prospect, right? Like getting to a true live streaming experience for this. You know, I'd love the idea of being able to watch a like like watch Glastonbury, but through like a light field camera where I can then kind of move around, look around, and stuff. I think that would be an amazing use of the technology. Yeah, uh, well, it's it's on our roadmap. Uh, it's a fortunate few years off, so you know, <laughs> sit tight. Um, we actually believe there's going to have to be a change in uh, in kind of camera technology before that's possible. Uh, one of the big challenges you have if you've got a 50 camera or 200 camera array is the raw data coming off those cameras is, is just so much to process. It's just really hard to see it getting to real time any, any way soon. So we, you know, we have some, some IP around ways to reconfigure cameras that might, be, might make it easier to do these things, but that's, that's an R&D project for us. How distributable is that kind of workload? If you've got some form of stream coming off of, say, a grid of 50, 100 cameras, right? You have to presumably can do some level of parallel post-processing on that, but at some point it's got to get down to like one data stream, right? We haven't really invested in saying, oh, you got 200 cameras, how can we you know, pull all this data into one pipe and then start to reshuffle it so it can be processed quickly? Um, the way we handle light fields, um, I don't want to like edge into trade secret territory, but it's highly parallelizable, right? You could, in theory, mm. just throw a ton of parallel compute at the thing and maybe you squint and conclude we could get close to real time, but the whole thing just feels so impractical uh, that we're not really we're not investing in that part of it yet. I think there are other breakthroughs that'll make it a lot easier. Um, so again, you know, I think I think it's a five year timeline for that. Yeah, that's as far as I'll go on that one. How's that? Cool. <laughs> <laughs> nice. No, no, absolutely fascinating. I think the interesting point of reference here for coming coming from like the traditional transcoding delivery playback world, you know, when we're talking about 100 megabit being Kind of the lower the lower end of phenomenal that we can expect. <laughs> like, 
If we're getting there and everybody's able to handle it, then do we even need to encode content anymore? Are we just like shoving ProRes <laughs> files straight down the pipe to people? Like at that point, like, <laughs> how many how many transcoding businesses are going to go to business if we don't like a file size does just does not matter in the traditional sense? Well, the other way of looking at it is that like uh, consumer expectations are going to going to get higher, resolutions mm-hmm. are going to go up. So you know, relative advantage is always is always powerful. Uh, sweet uh, sweet sixteen K video. I mean, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, and if you look at proposals for three sixty, I should say I'm I'm a crazy outlier. Okay, I mean the stuff I'm talking about is nuts compared to. I think where the center of mass of conversation in the VR industry is today. So if you look at what most people are talking about, they're talking about, well, it'd be great when we get to like 20K 2D video that we can make, you know, into stereo or whatever. So, you know, there are still people talking about these preposterously high resolutions for kind of traditional pixel-based images. Uh, And that might be part of the mix. Um, You know, I think that that plus some amount of depth augmenting will be important. So all the hardcore algorithms people are using to compress, you know, 2D rasters right now will be repurposed and augmented and, and, be really important. I mean, if we want to get to live streaming Glastonbury, you know, in two years, there's half a dozen companies working on that right now, sitting on top of the existing video stack uh, and doing extensions to it. So I, I think that might be the where the the real heat and light is for the next couple of years. Great. It's important that I you know not say that everyone who's listening to this, your job is irrelevant in five years, right? You don't want to like <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> I know what I'm retraining in now. <laughs> Would it be possible in the future that we record one of these podcasts using Lightfield? How many hard drives do you have? <laughs> we have the cloud. Yeah, well, there you go. Perfect. As long as your app is big enough, we can take care of it. Uh, actually, last shoot we did, uh, the way we moved the data to the clouds, we got one of those snowball appliances. You know? Oh, yeah, the Amazon things? ones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so give you some idea of the data that we're talking about here. It's not, it's not small. Mm-hmm. Um, but it'd be fun. It would be a lot of fun, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, Right now, uh, us getting a shoot together is still a bit of a, a chore, mm. but uh, I've got an engineer, a contract engineer working on just like wiring things together so I don't curse the world and all of my poor career choices every time we decide to go shoot something. <laughs> uh, so probably like a couple months, that won't be like uh, an impossible ask. Cool. That'd uh, be fun. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be a lot of fun. Um, it's kind of intimidating to stare at 50 lenses, by the way. It's like <laughs> something to get used to is like, yeah. I can't wait for this to be like the the action cam. Somebody going down a, a mountain on a snowboard with fifty cameras strapped to their back. <laughs> I, I have to say, actually, speaking of poor career choices, I actually used to film. I used to strap a digital cinema camera to my chest and ride an electric mountain bike down down slopes uh, to produce video content for the fitness industry. So I've been there. I have crashed with hundreds of pounds of video equipment, uh, like cabled in and taped to my body, and it's not—it's not very pleasant. So that's why I now just record podcasts and talk about technology. Um, that video is going to be available on Demux.com. By the way. <laughs> Actually, it was my first my first VR content I created was taking some of that footage and playing it back in a VR headset. Far and away the most nauseating thing I think I've oh. ever experienced. Uh, oh yeah. yeah. So yeah, no, no thanks on that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Something I wanted to that did occur in my mind was. Um, do we think this is going to give more ability for tweaking to the end user? So like one of the things that I, I've seen a lot more of is kind of picking your own like experience, right? Like there are websites out there like giving people the ability to pick particular pieces of the orchestra they want to hear more clearly or, you know, down mixing how they want to on the client end. Is this going to open that sort of window for cinematography? Like, am I going to be able to kind of realistically like play with the brightness I see and the contrast and the color space I see? Do we think? Yeah, I mean, so in theory, you could do that with two D video right now, right? You could give a end user, you know, some sort of LUT mm. control, and they could change what they see. Um, the thing that it opens up that's not possible is that you know the the end client really is the cinematographer, right? They're the ones who are mm. uh, choosing the framing and where they're looking and so on. 
And, you know, to be honest, I think that um, there, again, there are some mixed feelings about that in the sort of traditional cinematography community. And they're saying like, well, how do I direct someone's attention to the subject matter if they're staring off in the corner somewhere? Um, so I don't think we've really figured out the language for that. So that, that, it's, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword, right? Yes, there's a ton of control on the end client side. You know, we're not really sure how to use that, right? Um, hmm. And there's some, there's some really kind of like experiments in, in formalism right now, I'd say, where people are, you know, turning out the lights or doing things to like really manipulate attention. And it has that feel of like train pulling into the station kind of stuff. Like we're just trying to understand what the boundaries are and what the new language is. I should say also though, like to the extent this is uh, going to be interactive, I'm a, I'm a big skeptic. I think there's going to be a, a clear divide between video games and for lack of a better word, called cinematic content. And there'll be some formal experiments in the middle. And, and maybe, maybe someone finds a model there that works. But I think there's a reason that like, you know, the touchstone for the interactive narrative is like choose your own adventure books, which aren't mm -hmm. exactly, you know, there's a reason that those aren't a raging success still, right? I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a quirk. It's a weird thing. Yeah, we were, we were at a, a VR meetup the other day and uh, they brought up an example. The same discussion here is like, like how are you going to deal with this, this option for people to look around and make their own story and like, uh, they pointed to an example where somebody had basically like if you're looking straight, you see this this couple who looks like happy and they're, um, you know, in a good place. But then you, if you look around, you're actually in this like drab apartment and like you it, like it's in squalor and you get like more of the story. And it, it's hard. I haven't seen the example myself, but this is what they were describing. It made a lot of sense that it's like, oh, OK, so you can actually start to like inform that if you do it right, you could maybe inform the story by allowing the person to look around more as opposed to just being like a freedom thing. Right, like layer on context. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. So I, I'm already going to contradict myself here, just because, um, I don't know, <laughs> it, that leads to an interesting thought, which is the one change we have now is we actually have, for free, knowledge of where the user is looking. Right? That's actually the structural change. And so it's possible, some of the formal experimentation that's been done, I think the first I was aware of was um, the wild VR experience. Very subtle. I didn't realize it was true, but um, it was a branching narrative based on where you happen to be looking. And again, because the SDK includes your gaze direction, you can do that invisibly. Whereas I think it's really hokey if it's like, hey, here's a button. Do you want the person to go right or go left? Do you want the person to, you know, open mm -hmm. the cabinet or shoot a gun? You know, like it doesn't feel like a narrative. But if it's really subtle, then it, it feels like you're just watching a narrative. You don't know it's interactive. The downside is you don't know it's interactive, right? So is the experience actually any different than watching a, a, a simple linear narrative? You have no idea. If you're really into it and you go back and rewatch it and it's different, that's interesting, but it's sort of meta-interesting, right? It doesn't actually change the, the viewed experience. So as I dive into this model, you can see like, this is kind of where we are, right? It's like mm -hmm. people have theories and they're experimenting and, you know, train pulling into the station, you know? Mm -hmm. It was fun to watch. This has been fascinating. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. I didn't know if I was just going to, I, I thought about watching the podcast again so I could, um, ask really awesome informed or not podcast watch the meetup again and ask really awesome informed question but um, this was awesome it was a lot of new information from the pod, uh, from the meetup itself so if you're if you're interested in this and you want to see Ryan's talk at SF video you can find it on um, YouTube under the heavy bit library uh, just look up Demuxed and Ryan Dam I'm sure I'm sure it'll come up eventually but <laughs> yeah it's the only one I know of so <laughs> yeah <laughs> But thanks again, Ryan. This is, this is really great. Thanks for having me. It's a fun conversation. That's all we have for today. But as always, we'd love to hear what you thought, even if you disagree. So please reach out on Twitter at Demuxed. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 